and he will remove his people's disgrace from off the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. They will say on that day, look, this is our God, for whom we have waited, and he has saved us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Jason. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, the message translation. Let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it is so centrally important. I received my instructions from the Master himself and passed them on to you. The Master, Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread. Having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This cup is my blood, my covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the master. You will be drawn back into this meal again and again until the master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be part of? Examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Chris. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Luke 24, 28 through 35 in the English Standard Version. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is uh, toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in with them, and he was at table with them. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were gathered together with them, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The gospel of our Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may be seated. This is the fifth and final week in our series called Sacred, and one of the things we've tried to say each week about this series is the reason we've been talking about these things is because we need a reminder that this faith that we are part of is really a faith that is larger than ourselves. And sometimes in the emphasis or in the attempt to make sure that we say our faith is personal, We've sometimes blurred, confused, personal with private. And so in talking about a personal faith, we've imagined, as, we've imagined this faith as being private or being our own. And so then when we talk about losing our faith, we imagine it as, as if it were our faith to lose. And one of the quotes that, I, that we've been working with uh, through this series is this, this quote from, from a, a, a professor of mine that, that, that said, listen, I came to realize, I, I wondered why after all I had done to lose my faith, why I still had it. And she said, and I began to realize that the faith was not mine to lose. 
It was the church's. I participate in it, but I do not possess it. And what a wonderfully freeing thing that is to recognize that we are joining in the story of the whole people of God and that this faith didn't begin when you said yes to Jesus. It began when God began working in his world, calling, forming for himself a people. And so the image that we've used each week is this image of a snowstorm and a a rope guide, a guide rope. There was this episode, right, that I've talked about here from Little House in the Prairie where their pa is going out on Christmas Eve, I think. He's going to do some chores, and, and they say, you better put the rope up between the house and the barn. And the reason for that is because it is this, this rope that guides them back from the outside back home. And even though you've walked that trail a thousand times, 10,000 times, in a blinding snowstorm, it can be hard to know your way home. And I suspect that one of the reasons the church has passed on certain practices is because it's a way of showing us where home is. It's a way of saying as the faith begins to take root in new cities and new cultures and new ages with new technologies and all of this stuff, and as people are trying to sort out what things can we add to the faith or what things rather can we change about the expressions of this faith, as we're wrestling through all of these questions of mission and and context and all of that, we are deeply in need of a rope that guides us. That says, no, 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 this is what reminds us of where home is. This is what reminds us of who we are. So week one, as a quick recap, week one, we started with the Holy Spirit. Because we said, listen, it's not practices that make us the people of God. It is the Holy Spirit that makes us the people of God. Amen? And yet the Spirit works through these rhythms and through these practices. And so week two, we talked about baptism And we talked about how baptism is this new identity in Christ, but it's also a new family that we inherit. And so you're not baptized as an individual, you're baptized into a larger community, into a family. New new identity, new family. And then the next week, we talked about the scriptures. And in the scriptures, we said, listen, this is the big story of God at work within his world to rescue and redeem it. And we said, listen, we ought not come to the Bible to try to get something out of it. We would do better to stand under the word of God and and say, Lord, show me where I belong in your story. And this is why we've now moved the readers. Have you noticed this? We've moved the readers to be on the stage. So that every week when readers climb up the steps and go up there to read the scripture readings, you'll be reminded we stand under the word of God. Amen? But we also talked about how the story's central character, central motif is is about Jesus. That the Old Testament points toward him, the New Testament points back to him, and that we read all of scripture not as equal sort of different words, but we read them all through the lens of Jesus. So whatever is the word of God in the Old Testament, it's not God's final word on a thing. It's Jesus who is the full and final word of God. And this is why we stand during the gospel reading to say, yeah, it's all scripture, but Jesus is the point. So when we read the gospels, the stories of Jesus or the words of Jesus, we stand as if to say, yep, this is it. Pay attention now. And then in week four, we talked about confession. Last week, Brad Baker reminded us that confession is the way that we uh, uh, become vulnerable and are connected again with the mercy and the grace of God. This morning, 
we're going to talk about the meal, the table. You could imagine that every week of this series has been building to this. The Spirit, our new birth through baptism, the Scriptures that is our story, the confession which is our way of participating in the story, and now we've come in. You're in the family and you're seated at the family table. Now, I, I don't know what meals were for you growing up, but growing up in Malaysia, meals were a huge part of life. In fact, if you've ever been to other cultures where feast, there's a culture of feasting, you might know a little bit about what my childhood was like. Because literally, there were roadside stalls that were open all around the clock. I mean, it was like, I remember as a, as a youth, you know, we'd go out for, as a young person, we'd go out for an activity or whatever, and then there was always something open all around the clock. And they were People were eating stuff like curries and noodles and fried rice and whatever, just all, you know. And I, it was only later that I began to look at the, the, the street and the open drain right by those tables and began to think a little more consciously. And, you know, in recent years, they've changed some of their health standards. But I never got sick. <laughs> this was some of the best food you could find anywhere. It's funny, Holly is part of this um, um, mom's meal group. And uh, they're reading through a book called Bread and Wine, and one of the questions um, that it begins with is, there are two types of people in the world. The people who wake up in the morning and think, what am I going to eat today? And the people who don't. <laughs> and, and, and Holly, bless her, is definitely in the people who don't category. You know, so we've, we've, we've worked through some of that in our marriage of, of me saying... Sweetheart, what are we going to feast on today? And she's saying, what? No, I'm not thinking about the meals yet, you know. But regardless of how you, how you grew up, there is something about food. Think of a child or maybe even think of a baby and how from, an er- from, the, you know, from the first day in the world, they're dependent on someone else to feed them. But it takes them a few years to grow out of this feeling of dependence on someone else to feed them. I mean, my kids, even when, when they're toddlers, you know, I, I, I have these distinct memories um, because many of them were not that long ago uh, of Jonas, you know, saying on a Saturday morning, I need someone to get me breakfast. You know, and it's like the world is going to end if I don't have food. And especially him as a boy, you know, he's like, so, okay, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll get you breakfast, you know. And I think this is a picture for us sometimes of how we think about our own situation in life. That food is this metaphor, is this picture, is this, it's, this, it's more than a metaphor, it's really a representative of how dependent we are on sustenance. And maybe some of you have had these moments where you feel like, God, I need you to take care of me. Why won't you? God, I need food. And you're not talking about literal food, but you're talking about who is going to keep you going. And there are times when you can feel so helpless and so on your own. And maybe that feeling of being on your own bleeds over into this other feeling that says, well, fine, I've got to take care of myself and look at all that's here. And so the other experience common to parents is to find your, you come downstairs because you didn't want to get up at six in the morning on a Saturday, and your children have been stuffing themselves with chocolate chips. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's not going to be good. You know. and there's, I heard this story recently. Do you know the band, the Wren Collective? 
Irish guys, a great band. I was with them at this event this summer, and they were telling me the story of how they were doing an event in the States at this really posh uh, golf country club kind of thing. And they just, we didn't know why we were there. I mean, these guys are like rowdy, Irish, Mumfordish kind of, although they insist they were Mumford before there was Mumford. But anyway, uh, and they're really Irish, unlike Mumford. But anyway, so they're at this really posh country club, and, uh, and they're sitting down, and they're trying to you know, be sophisticated and all this stuff. And they notice that um, next to them is this platter of desserts. And they're thinking, okay, well, we, we should just skip the other stuff. Let's go right for the cakes and the brownies. And so, you know, they're thinking, okay, well, let's do it. So they start, they start loading up their plates from this big tray, and they're eating. And, and a couple of them notice right away from the first bite that something's a bit off. But they're thinking, well, maybe American cakes are different than Irish cakes, and maybe chocolate chip brownies. You know, so, so some of them stop because they're like, well, we've got to play after this. We don't want to be. But there's one guy, because there's always one guy, <laughs> who decides to keep going. And he's just, you know, just eating it. He's just, you got to come. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of their eye, the other guys notice the, the wait staff kind of whispering and saying, oh, and there's this little bit of a panic going on. And so one of the waiters comes out and says, I'm so sorry, and removes the tray and takes it back. And then, and then they're trying to figure out how to say it. And then they just decide to tell him that those weren't the real desserts. Those were the display desserts made out of lard and other not-so-natural, healthy products. And I, and I wonder if this is a little bit like what we do when we look at what is being offered to us in this life. And we think, okay, I'm alone. God's not taking care of me or God's just concerned about me going to heaven. He's not really my sustenance every day. He's just my eternal, I'll fly away salvation thing. So as far as what nourishes me, what brings me life, what keeps me going, I have to find something else that will feed me. And look, everybody else says it's a job. And look, everybody else says it's a relationship. And look, everybody else says it's this. Everybody else says it's this kind of a vacation, or it's this kind of a home, or it's this kind of a, a spouse, or it's this kind of family. And, and, and we, we think, okay, this is what I need as my sustenance. And somewhere, someone is saying, oh, dear God, they're stuffing their face with lard. <laughs> because this is not the way that we were meant to be sustained. This word, Eucharist, is not usually the word we use when we talk about communion. A lot of times we just say communion, or maybe we'll say, um, you know, the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. But I like this word Eucharist because of a a few things. For one, if you spell this word out on your notes, E-U-C-H-A-R-I-S-T, Eucharist, you'll see right in the middle of it this word charis. And it's the word here for grace, or even more in its just kind of pure form, gift. Gift. Imagine that while we've been stuffing our face with lard because we've thought this is the best that I can have, and this is the best that the world and life offers, imagine that in the middle of this God is saying, I've got a gift for you. I've got a gift for you. Jonas, our son, just turned four, and just those words saying, I've got a gift for you, is, I mean, I wish I could freeze frame that expression on his face. It's like, 
Like, buddy, I've got a gift for you. I mean, what if you came to the Lord's table each week saying, our Father has a gift for you. Our Father has a gift for you that's better than the stuff you've been convinced you needed to feed yourself on because you thought you were alone in the world. So right at the heart of this word Eucharist is this word for gift, but the word Eucharist itself means thanksgiving. And what a perfect word for this week. Because we will all feast on a Thanksgiving feast of some sort this week. Eucharist means Thanksgiving because we're saying, God, if you've given me this great gift, I've got a big thank you for you. I've got Thanksgiving in my heart. I want to spell this out for us this morning very briefly here. What are we thankful for? What are we thanking God for at the table? Three things. The first is this, our rescue. We are thanking God for our rescue. You see, the meal that Jesus turns and says is a meal that speaks of him was really an old Jewish meal known as the Passover. And the story of the Passover can be found in the book of Exodus. Turn there with me to Exodus 12. These are the instructions that the people of God are slaves. And in verse 7, it says, they should take some of the blood, this is the blood of the lamb, and smear it on the two doorposts and the beam over the door of the houses in which they are eating. And that same night, they should eat the meat roasted over the fire. They should eat it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now, why? Unleavened bread, because this was a meal that was made in haste and had to be eaten in haste because they were slaves awaiting a rescue. And so they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. This wasn't the kind of feast like this week's feast for all of us that you're going to spend hours preparing for. This was the, guys, what do we have? We, let's, let's get unleavened bread quick and bitter herbs. Why? Because it's a reminder of their situation as slaves. So this isn't the time to bring out all of the flavors. This is the time to remember that our plight is bleak, that the situation is bad. And then skip down to verse 11. This is how you should eat it. You should be dressed with your sandals on your feet and your walking stick in your hand. Listen, it'd be the modern day equivalent of saying, eat this meal standing up with your coat and boots on. You know, you know the opposite of take your coat off, stay a while? This is keep your coat on. We're not going to be here long. Get ready to run. You should eat the meal in a hurry. It is the Passover of the Lord. Now skip down to verse 26. And when your children ask you, what does this ritual mean to you? You will say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For the Lord passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. When he struck down the Egyptians, he spared our houses. And then the people then bowed down and worshiped. Church, when we come to the table, what are we thanking God for? We're thanking God that when he judges the sin in this world, when he sets the world to right, which is wonderful when we talk about justice, but not so wonderful when we recognize that justice requires judgment and that evildoers will be punished, that there's some kind of judgment that God will bring because he is the God who sets right and, and, and makes right. And we are celebrating our rescue because we're saying, okay, when that, on that great day when God brings to account those who have rebelled against him, he will pass over us. 
Now think of that. The judgment and the consequence of our own choice to live against God that was bound toward death, that was bound toward destruction, God is saying, I've made a way because of the blood of the Lamb whose, whose blood is sprinkled on the doorposts now. We can say, God, you passed over us. This meal is to remind us of our rescue. You know, it's interesting that the story of how sin enters the world is through eating. That the story of how the fall begins to take effect is by taking food and eating. And so it makes sense that the story of how we remember our rescue from the effects of the fall is by eating. By taking something else into our bodies and saying, okay, not the fruit that was an act of rebellion, but the bread that reminds me of our rescue. Not the fruit of our rebellion, but the bread of our rescue. There's also something in here to think about our rescue and how it means all of our appetites get set right. Food is such a picture of our human appetites. I love how the great St. Augustine talked about sin as not necessarily just desiring bad things, but desiring good things badly. In other words, having these desires that the answer, to the, the God, God's answer is not like the Buddhist answer, which is ignore your passions, negate your feelings, subdue your desires. What Jesus is saying is, take an eat of me so that your desires and appetites will be rightly ordered rightly set in order. Yes, you're supposed to take delight in in lots of things in this world, but only as you let me put them in the right alignment. Isn't that beautiful? That this meal is a meal that, that we are thankful for because it is our rescue. It's the meal that reminds us of our desires and appetites being set right. But secondly, sorry, so with that, we think of the power of a meal to take us back. Take us back to a moment. You'll feel it this week when you eat some of your favorite dishes. You're like, oh, this makes me feel like a child again. And I think there's supposed to be something of that at the Eucharist. We take the bread and the cup and we say, oh, Jesus, you just took me back to the moment that you rescued me. Jesus, you just took me back to the moment that I tasted your goodness. Secondly, this meal speaks of the restoration of all things. The Old Testament reading this morning was from Isaiah, and Isaiah talks about a great feast on God's mountain where people from all the nations are going to gather and feast and eat. Revelation has a similar vision. Both Peter and Paul talk about a coming day where there is this restoration of all things. You know, meals have a way of awakening expectation. The power of a meal to awaken expectation. Sometimes some of the most idealistic images in paintings or in movies are scenes at a table, right? Which is why the, the comic movies that sort of parody the perfect family always have things going wrong at a meal, 
right? And meet the parents when Ben Stiller starts to quote Beatles lyrics as he's praying and then he knocks down the ashes of, you know, and you're like, oh my goodness, this meal is ruined, right? Because we're used to thinking about a meal as the setting for an ideal family, a Norman Rockwell painting. But I don't think this is on accident. I think there is something in us that when we think of a meal, we think of, There is happiness, there is harmony, there is restoration, there is forgiveness, there is healing. Look, we're all eating a meal together. And for some of you, you're going, this, this, the holiday season is just a painful reminder that that moment is not yet. But when we come to the Lord's table, it's supposed to awaken expectation to say, God, I'm looking forward to the day. When prodigals come home. Jesus, I'm looking forward to the day when at your table you call in men and women from the north and the south and the east and the west. The people we thought were forgotten, the people we thought were lost, the people we thought were too far. I'm looking forward to the day when we sit at your table. Have you ever had the feeling where you walked in from outside and you walked into a kitchen and you smelt something cooking? You know, like on a cold, snowy day, let's say you, you know, you, you've put a pot roast in. You're like, no, we should have done that. And then you get home from church and the roast is almost done. You start to smell, you're like, oh, this is going to be so good. Or maybe you make, you know, you, you come home and someone's making chili and you're like, oh, yes. There's something about a meal that can awaken expectation. I think when we come to Jesus' table We're supposed to say, this is just bread and this is just a cup. But you know what? It's awakened in me this expectation for the great feast one day. God, let me hope when I come to the table. But the last thing that this table is about is about the real presence of Christ. Now, I say it this way on purpose, the real presence of Christ. Because this is a phrase that's been used by, by many theologians. It was, it was, it's, you find it being used in early centuries, and then you find it being used even by reformers. Some of us probably don't come from traditions where we have a high view of communion, and so as a result of being nervous about saying that the bread is like literally flesh or something spooky like that, as a result of being so afraid of that, we swing to this other side and we're like, well, I, I, don't, I think it's just like a toast to Jesus. <laughs> You know, it's just like, a, hey, hey, thanks, God. It's just a symbol, right? And whether we know it or not, we are all descendants of Zwingli, the, the most extreme of the reformers who said, no, let's throw, let's just, it's just a memorial meal. Listen, this meal is a memorial. There is a past remembrance, but it is so much more than that. Even John Wesley said, listen, of all the sacraments, this one is the most special. Because there's something about the real presence of Christ here. John Calvin said, the, the Holy Spirit does something to awaken faith in the hearts of the believers. And as we come, we meet Christ. Luther said, this is my body, quoting Jesus' words. This is my blood. I like the Eastern Orthodox way of saying it. They call it a mystery. They said, we don't really know how this is happening here. We don't know. 
And if you press the Eastern Orthodox, well, do you believe in transubstantiation or consubstantiation? Or more? Yeah. Some of you are like, what the, what just happened here? <laughs> the Eastern Orthodox will say, it's a mystery. Something of heaven and earth are meeting here. Something of Christ is coming here. We, we don't know, we don't want to explain, we don't know how to explain it. Even Augustine called a sacrament a visible sign of an invisible grace. I don't know how to explain what's happening at the table. But can you believe that there's an invisible grace being given to you when you come? Can you believe that Jesus is meeting you at his table? This is why in the gospel reading it's significant that Luke says Jesus blessed the bread, broke it, gave it. Luke uses that formula for Jesus a few times when he's feeding the 5,000 at Passover And then now the resurrected Jesus at the end of Luke's gospel. And he says their eyes were opened. Something happened. We saw Jesus. We recognized him. I don't know how. But I'm not willing to say, oh yeah, when we come and do this bread and cup thing, "Eh, that's just a token. I'm not willing to say that. I'm not willing to dismiss it as a symbol or a token. I want to be like my four-year-old son that says, God, you've got grace for me today? <gasps> Thank you. I don't know how, but, but I receive it today. Could you come to the table like that today? Could you come to the table with the simple expectancy of a child? Because there's power in a meal to make us slow down. Slow down. This isn't fast food. This isn't drive-through communion. Some of you, some people have said, well, you know, communion, it takes such a long part of our service. Yes! Do we have to do it every week? Yes! Why? Because I may get it wrong in the sermon, but you will always meet Jesus here. Ultimately, you don't gather on a Sunday morning to hear a person talk. You gather because Jesus has set the table for you. The remarkable thing about that story in Luke's gospel is it's not Jesus' home. He's the guest. He's the guest in these disciples' home. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he kind of acts like, remember the story? He acts like he's going on, like, are they going to invite me? And then they say, hey, why don't you come eat with us? You're kind of a weirdo anyway. Just eat with us, you know? He's a guest. It is not custom for a guest to bless the meal. It is not custom for a guest to take over and say, okay, here, here, okay, have a seat. Here's the, di- there, what's going on here? See, Jesus is the guest that becomes the host because he himself is the feast. Jesus is the guest who becomes the host whose very life is the feast. Some of us are here this morning and Frankly, you're exhausted. You're exhausted because you've thought that this Christian life is about you finding the resources within yourself to live this way. Can we say it like that? That you've thought that what church is about and what Christianity is about is about saying yes to Jesus and then finding all the resources within yourself to make it happen. And you're exhausted because it's exhausting. 
I can't be the mother I want to be. I can't be the father I want to be. I can't be the spouse I want to be. I can't be like, just, I'm trying. And what Jesus is saying to you is, This is my body. Let it be your bread today. This is my blood. Let it be your drink today. I know that sounds bizarre, but the picture that we're supposed to get is this. Jesus is all that you need. There is no strength within you to live this out. There is nothing that this world can offer that will satisfy and sustain. The only one who does is Christ. 